Welcome to the Radio Book Club, a collaboration between KGNU Community Radio and the Boulder Bookstore. I'm Maeve Conran with KGNU. As always, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore, my co-host, back again at the bookstore, albeit there's nobody else here except us and our guest who has a very significant connection to the bookstore. So Arsene, who have we been reading for the month of January? We've been reading Alison Ames and the book is To Break a Covenant. And Alison, I know her as Allie because she worked here for a couple of years oh, yeah. and uh, she was working on the book while she worked here. So it's so exciting to see it come to fruition. And so as soon as I saw the book was coming out, I was like, we have to have Allie on the show. Well, it is great to have Ali here with us on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Just to clarify for yes. our listeners, this is a book for young adults. It's also horror. I mean, is that a correct way to describe yes. it? Yes. Yeah. They, I think, ended up marketing it a little bit more as a thriller so it could go into more slots. Um, so like it, like on the Amazon tags and stuff, you get a thriller, you get horror, you get mystery, which I don't totally get but they they resisted just classifying it as horror because i think it's still i feel like horror is having a moment but it's still like on the ascension of the moment so they were like just in case we're also gonna say thriller but yes it's well just horror. to let people know there's so much more than this it's a psychological thriller in many ways because so much of the drama is playing out in, in the brains and the minds of, of the four protagonists. And these are four young women who are all together, wonderful friends. That's what I loved about this book, the, the friendship aspect of it. But at the heart of it, the geographic heart of it is this mining town that was relocated to the edge of an old mining town because of a, a, an explosion that happened in the mine. And as a result of this explosion, the mine is burning continuously and there is ash falling all over the old town so the residents moved literally just to the edge of where the ash was falling so so that's a brief synopsis of where it's at take us through more details and why that was the setting you wanted so i it's based on centralia which is a real pennsylvania mining town where this did happen and i i i get into sort of research rabbit holes sometimes where i just like I hear a weird thing and I'm like, I have to learn about this in as much detail as possible for an indefinite amount of time. And so I had seen Silent Hill, which is a film based on a video game, which is based on the town of Centralia. And I kind of got into the rabbit hole of like, this is a real town and this is a real thing that happened. And the idea of like a town that's been abandoned that you can still go back to, like it's abandoned, but everything is still there. It's just sort of covered up a little bit was very grabby for me. And so that was kind of, I was like, okay, I have to have this like quiet ash covered space for them to operate in. So whatever happens has to be kind of around that central area. So that was kind of in like a very, very early draft. Uh, they, when it was a very different book, they leave a body in the sugar bowl in order to and they stand there kind of watching as the ash covers it up and that was one of the first things that i wrote for the book which didn't make it because it's now a very different book but that was always like as i was writing it i was like this is something like this is i have to keep going with this because it was like it felt correct 
So, you know, as Maeve said, it's written for young adults, a teen, we have it in our teen section at the store. But, you know, as I was reading it, the, the, the girls are all between, I think, junior and senior year of high school. <laughs> so they're not kids, they're teens. Um, but it appeals to adults, I think. I mean, did you always say. envision this as a teen book. And, you know, because I felt like a lot of things that we call teen books now, not a lot, but some, and I'd say your book falls into this, work well for adult books. And maybe 30, 40 years ago when I was growing up, yeah. they would have been adult books. You know, like Catcher in the Rye is about a kid the same age or, yeah. or um, To Kill a Mockingbird or Huck Finn or all these things that are adult classics. And so, you know, that has a horror element. These are very sophisticated kids. I, I guess talk about, the, you always envision it as a teen and, and how do you feel about it working as an adult book? I feel like it definitely could. I feel like the distinction between YA and adult fiction is not as strong content-wise as it is, like, audience-wise. Like, I think there are people who really resist, like, oh, that's a that's young adult. That's not for me. That's about romance and boys and, you know, sparkles. And it's like, sometimes, yeah. But I think some of the plans that teens make are less rational than they could be there's a there's a bit in covenant where they're like okay this is the plan this is what we're gonna do and it's like as an adult if you're reading it you're like that's not that's not a good idea they shouldn't do that but they're teenagers like they <laughs> might do that they probably would do that you know there's a lot of like not short-sightedness but just like a belief in your own ability to to get something done that i think in in teen fiction is like that's how you get katniss and she's like i'm gonna overthrow the whatever the hunger games and i think that the idea that a teen could believe that they could do that is part of that because like when you get into adult fiction it's like well i'd like to do that but here's all the reasons why it won't work and here's me being rational and level-headed and like how am i going to pay my bills if i overthrow the hunger games and so <laughs> so there's i think an element of irrationality that people don't necessarily care for in young adult where they're like well that's so stupid why would she you know, go back down into the mine or whatever. And it's like, she's 16, she's 17. She's not totally convinced that she can die because you're 17, like you don't. We're gonna have Ali read from the very beginning of the book, which, which really sets it up beautifully. And when I reread the beginning, I, I, the last line really stood out to me. So I kind of maybe talk a little bit about foreshadowing with, you know, <laughs> you know, once you, you start an introduction to a book, but it's got to do so much, right? Yeah. I like to, I do, I do like to do a bit of a, of a foreshadowing. If you've ever seen one of those ghost hunting TV shows, you've seen Moon Basin. Paranormal investigators have been coming here since before the Amityville hoax even hit the airwaves. There's not a show on record that hasn't done an episode here. The bare bones version goes like this. The coal mine came first and the town was built to sustain it. The relationship progressed symbiotically until the explosion, which left 17 miners missing and started an underground fire that's still burning, feeding on the seams of coal. About four months after the miners disappeared, ash started raining out of the sky. It won't stop until the fire goes out, and depending on how much coal there is still left in the earth, that could be another 200 years. Ash blankets the old town now, filling the air and blocking out the sun. The air quality got so bad that the townsfolk had to move, but Rather than uproot completely and go somewhere new, they simply found the edge of the ashfall and resettled beyond it. There are mining towns just like ours all across the eastern U.S., but 
that's the one thing that makes Moon Basin different. No one ever leaves. That's author Alison Ames reading from her latest book, To Break a Covenant. And, and really that segment sets the scene and then the book develops and uh, the story unfolds. But this idea that I loved how you described it, a symbiotic relationship between the coal mine and the town. And you said that this was actually inspired by, you know, a town in Pennsylvania. But as you said, there are mining towns all up and down. I mean, some here in Colorado, but really we think of it on kind of on the East Coast, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and this relationship. And I've heard this and I've spoken to activists who were trying to get away from fossil fuels, but they're coming from these communities and they say that people don't understand the connection that goes beyond economics of a mining town and the people who are from there, especially multi-generations of people. There's a connection that goes just beyond, oh, that's where we all worked. Yeah. Now we're going to work somewhere else. I mean, talk a little bit about that. Like a location-based industry is really important because you have to go where the coal is, right? And so then you build up a living space around that, but you're living there so that you can go into the mine and then the mine is what allows you to live there. And then you go back into the mine and you keep making money and then you keep living there. And so everyone, like the town exists because the mine exists. And so that's sort of in a way that I think a lot of like factory towns and industry towns, like you kind of get to that point, I think with a lot of like, if you have you know, any kind of big factory where most of the people in a town work, but like the factory was placed there. So theoretically, there was a time that the town existed before the factory existed. The town could exist after the factory. But when you get something like a coal town or a gold town or whatever, and that's why there's so many like abandoned gold rush towns in Colorado is because once the product is gone, there's not really a reason to stay in the town and you have no connection to it beyond like this is the place where our industry was and now it's not anymore and you know as much as we'd like to stay here if we're still going to be in this industry we have to go to where the product is again and so when they are not able to mine and they can't have that relationship anymore obviously they've already been affected by the presence i will call it um but I think that that's how the ghost hunting element of it then gets started because that's their new symbiotic thing of like we're sustained and we can have this income that is specifically based on us being willing to sort of present ourselves as like the haunted spooky town, you know, and then we'll have all the people come through and we have all of our motels and our gift shops and our everything else. And so that's the new industry that sustains them. And so there's kind of a willing suspension of disbelief of I don't know if you've seen Grave Encounters it is a film I did I did a lot of nods to stuff that I like because I wasn't sure if I would get another chance <laughs> book wise so I was like everything I've ever loved I'm just going to mention real quick in a small way but Grave Encounters is a movie about a show called Grave Encounters and the whole thing is that they're making ghost shows and hunting ghosts and they don't actually believe in it and so there's a lot of like behind the scenes or they'll cut or whatever and they go at one point and they meet like the gardener of this asylum and they're like have you ever felt a presence here in the scary asylum and he's like i just started working here like two days ago and then some money changes hands and then they turn the camera back on and he's like there was a ghost right over there it was so scary and so i think that's kind of 
where Moon Basin is at, where there's an undercurrent of, you know, yeah, everyone here has nightmares and some weird stuff has definitely happened and we're sort of not really thinking about that. But if somebody points a camera at me, like, sure, I'll tell you about the time that I saw a creepy lady walk by my window or whatever, you know, because that's sort of your new normal and your new industry. So, but it's hard to get away from it once you have it because that's what you have. You have a great line where um, I think Clem, narrator, says, you know, um, we were a haunted town, like some towns were lobster towns. Yeah. You know, I thought that was great. Yes. And, um, let's talk about the four girls that are at the heart of this book. And just as you were talking about the different attitudes towards goat, some people believe, some people don't believe, a lot of those beliefs are in, in the four girls. There's Piper, yeah. who's brand new, uh, Nina, who's the total skeptic, yes. Clem is somewhere in between, and Lisi, who is, is more of a believer. Mm -hmm. So talk about those four girls. Was it always four girls? And, and it's almost like uh, what I liked about it, um, you, you've seen in so much classic fiction, the, the, the boys, the four boys, you know, yeah. and, and, they, and the girls form a blood pact, which I thought was wonderful, which <laughs> echoed lots of, you know, 19th century boys fiction or something, right? Yeah. So talk, talk about these, these girls at the heart of the book. So Clem is, because we all have main character syndrome, Clem is the most like me, um, is the easiest to get into her head. And I feel like she's sort of in a place where she gets it and she believes, but she sort of believes in the way that like, if your mom makes you go to church on Sunday, you're like, sure, I'm not gonna burst into flames or whatever, because I don't agree with this. And if she's shown evidence, like she's willing to accept it. And she's a little bit nervous about it. Like I won't, I don't, I believe in ghosts, but I won't play with the Ouija board. And like, even if somebody doesn't believe in ghosts, if they're like, oh, I'm just gonna talk to the Ouija board. And I'm like, nope, there's no reason to do that. That's, not, you know, even if it's not real, why would you invite it, you know, just to be safe. And then Nina, um, Nina is always very practical and she's very no nonsense, which I, find very fun to write because I'm basically an all nonsense person. <laughs> so like having this sort of rational to the point of like, she's like, you know, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses and she's like hearing like prancing zebra feet and somebody going, we're zebras. And she's like, no, I'm pretty sure it's still horses. Cause that makes the most sense. Just logically so then they're like ghost things are happening and she's like no i'm pretty sure there's a gas leak you know like she's just she ends up doing more far-fetched things to like the mental gymnastics of like it can't possibly be a ghost because ghosts don't exist so what are the increasingly unrealistic things that it could be instead of that um piper i love piper she um she's <laughs> i think more along the lines of Clem where she's like, I mean, if you show it to me and it seems legitimate, then I guess I have no reason not to believe it. But there's also, I think within her, the, like she wants to believe that it's ghosts because if it's not ghosts, and that means that her dad is losing his grip on his sanity in a way that maybe can't be repaired. Whereas if it's ghosts and we get him away from the ghosts, then he can become my dad again and be normal again. But if it's, if there's nothing down there, then he's just like slipping away from me 
in a way that I maybe can't get him back. So Piper's dad is an engineer. They've just moved to town because Piper's dad has been contracted to go down, check out the mine. Is there a way to stop the fire that's been raging and, and seal it up? And so that's how Piper comes to town and her dad is the one who goes down the mine. And, and you write about the mine in so many ways. But the, the thing that really just jumped out at me was that the mine is hungry and you use the word hunger. It's like a Venus flytrap. It's trying to it's got an appetite and it wants to suck and eat anyone who comes near it and bring bring it in. And so that to me really just made it this living thing, this idea that it was this hungry thing that needed to be fed and it's being fed people or souls or, or the sanity of anyone who goes anywhere near us. Yeah, it, it, they talk a little bit about it when they're talking to the quote unquote town historian and he's like, every time somebody goes down there, it gets, you know, riled up basically. And it, it there's kind of a ripple effect of it's been awakened. And so then all of the things that happen to the people who don't go into the mine kind of start to escalate because it's it's basically been alerted to the fact that there's prey again and that the prey is maybe because it's always kind of sort of spider style. It's always sort of waiting for something to be plucking at the edges of the web, but it's not actively like trying to lure anything toward it. But then once the plucking starts, it's like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to go actively to pursue this now that I'm aware of it. Um, but yeah, he goes, he goes down there and I had to do a lot of research about whether or not you can fill a mine that is on fire. And the short answer is pretty much no, unless you have a lot of money and time. Cause if you do it wrong, it can collapse the mine or it can make the fire worse. And it's like, if the fill isn't compacted properly, then it doesn't like, it's a whole thing. So he's anyway, he's down there and he's not finding solutions. And then he's just within its sort of influence in the strongest space that it has. And that causes him to want to stay down there. This idea that a mine can just burn underground for years. I hadn't really thought of that. And then recently there has been in the news this place in, I think it's Turkmenistan, this natural gas field that's been on fire for years. And they're talking now about filling it in. I think they call it the door to hell or something. Oh my something God. Yes, evocative. I saw the photos of it. Unbelievable. <laughs> like that, I was like, that is just straight out of a horror story. And then I went to break a covenant. So this is the thing that you can have mines on fire. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just forever. And it's not the, and the reason that they're able to go down there is because the, like the seams of coal are within the earth. So it's a lot of smoldering and it's a lot of, because they have, there's a source for the fire, but it's not necessarily like a raging blazing bonfire type of thing. And the ground, like what eventually causes people to not be able to live near it is the air becomes very toxic. Obviously the air quality is very bad. And then the ground is just not stable because it's just hot all the time. So you'll get like melting tar in the roads and stuff like that. And so all the pictures that you can find of Centralia, like anytime there's like a paved road that leads into the town, there's this huge sign that's like, nope, it's not like you will sink, you will fall. This is not a real road anymore. Like it looks like it, but it's not, you know, it's, it's on the verge of being liquid basically. So, and people really didn't want to leave. That was also a thing that I was surprised. I mean, I guess it's less surprising now in the sort of general climate that we're in of 
things that people should do for their health that they really don't want to do. But like when Centralia was evacuated, I mean, there were people who were like until the very end hanging on, like had to be physically removed from their homes, even though they were breathing in, you know, deeply toxic sludge because they were like, this is my home. This is where I live. And if I want to breathe in sludge in my home, I can. So when you write, do you scare yourself ever? Because it starts getting pretty scary towards the end. And I wondered, like, this is your imagination. I mean, you did a lot of research, but then the imagination takes over and you're imagining these things are even worse than Centralia. So do you ever just kind of scare yourself a little bit? Like, ooh. I, I unfortunately don't because I think the fact that I know that it, like I have friends that are like, oh, I made myself cry when I was writing my book today because it was so sad. And I'm like, I, I've never had that react. Like sometimes I'll be like, huh, I did, I did a good joke. Like that's pretty much the extent of my being surprised at myself. But I also am consistently like, this is not scary enough. Like I don't think it's scary enough because it's coming out of my own brain. And so I want it to be better and more all the time. But objectively, you know, if somebody else were to present that to me, I think I would be like, that's, that's pretty creepy. I don't care for it. I'd like it to, you know, not happen into my eyeballs. But if it's, since I know that I did it, I'm like, like do, do better next time self. So I would like to eventually scare myself, but I haven't, I haven't yet. Or we have something to look forward to. <laughs> That'll be, yeah, that's the one that I can market and be like, this one actually haunts me. Well, the scary parts are really juxtaposed with the the beauty and the pureness, I think, of the friendship between the four girls. And you spoke earlier about what makes a young adult novel young adult and how adult readers actually, you know, really enjoy them, but some dismiss it because they think, oh, it's just teen stuff. But I think this really worked because the friendship that you create when you're a teen like that is so unique and so pure in many ways. It's, it's very different from when you make friendship, make friends as an adult. And I thought having that, which it's a covenant, they do this blood bond, this covenant at the beginning. You don't kind of do that when you're a little bit older, but yeah. you do that. You, ha- you fall in love with your friends. I always think that the friendships that you make at that age are so unique and so special. And that's why I thought this was perfect to have these four protagonists as teens as opposed to, say, in their 20s. And it's not just about making bad decisions. It's really about the capacity to have that type of friendship as well. It's consuming in a way that it it can't be once you have life responsibilities. Like, you can't spend every waking moment with somebody in your 20s, really, unless you're dating them, which is just an offshoot of, like, life continuing. But, yeah, I... Teen girls especially, I think, in their friendships are very, I keep using the word hungry, but it is very like you're just desperate to be around your friends all the time. And, you know, your parents are like, haven't you seen enough of Emma this week? You know, don't you need to do some homework or have some alone time? And I'm like, no, I'm, it's basically the same as being alone when I'm with them, except for that I'm with them because I should be with them all the time because we're just sort of one big thing. So, yeah, I do... I do love teen girl friendship. I think it's really powerful and a little bit scary. I think Megan Abbott does a really, really good job of that same kind of like bordering on consumptive 
just desperate friendship love. So that was, she's always been a very big inspiration for me of just like how wrapped up in your friends you can become. So. And I, I often think that's trivialized in a lot of, you know, culture that we see. And, and I'm very upset by that because it is a very, very powerful thing. And it's a very important thing to the identity of those young people who were forming those friendships. So I thought you really did it justice in your Thank book. You. Yeah, I love that aspect of the book. I also love it's the summer, so there's no school. The parents, are, for one reason or the other, the parents are all gone. Yeah, well, they have missing. to be. It's young adult. You yeah. But it feels natural. It doesn't feel forced, you know. Like, you. And Thank I just you. thought... And, and there's some beautiful scenes. One of my, some of my favorite scenes were the scenes where they go to the meadow and the trees. And it's like they're out of the influence of the mine. And they're just in this beautiful space together. Mm -hmm. oh, kind of an oasis. And um, I guess you feel you, you, you kind of needed to give them that breathing space, you know, mm -hmm. to, to avoid the claustrophobia of the mine. Yes. And I think without doing spoilers, I guess, I do, you know, because it is, it is still in the town and it feels like it's not in the town, but they give it a part of themselves. And when Lisey talks about, and this is, I did leave a notebook full of instructions for blood sacrifice at a job interview uh, when I was writing this book and I did still get the job, but they were concerned. Um, but the reason that they started doing blood sacrifice, biblically, historically speaking, is because, quote unquote, blood is the first language that man understood. So when God wanted to make a covenant with his people, they would use blood. And that's why Jesus had to die, etc. But they would cut an animal in half and they would walk through the halves of the animal to signify sort of like, this is the seriousness of the promise that we're making and this is what will happen theoretically if you break that promise. So if you make the covenant in blood, you have to pay in blood if you break it. Um, and they make that covenant with each other, but also kind of with the clearing and the space that they're in physically. And it doesn't really occur to them at the time that that space is a part of that promise to each other, um, which is, you know, comes comes back later. But I think that there's a little bit of an element of maybe not intentional bait, but a little bit of a, a false sense of security, you know, oh, you can be yourselves in here. There's no, you can't feel anything wrong in here. Maybe, maybe do some stuff you wouldn't do in another part of town. You know, they're not smearing their blood all over the mine. <laughs> but they don't really think twice about pouring it onto the ground in this particular safe space. Well, there's so much in this book, as we talked about. There's the psychological thriller aspect, of course, there's the ghost story, and there's the friendship at the heart of it, too. And, and there's a lot more to discuss, which we will get into with Alison Ames in the podcast only edition after hours at the Radio Book Club. So we encourage our listeners to subscribe to the Radio Book Club so you can get that bonus content. But in the meantime, we're going to say goodbye to 
Alison, for the moment, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Thank and you. as we always do at the end of the Radio Book Club, we announce the next book that we're inviting listeners to read along with us. So for the month of February, Arson, what are we asking people to read? It's a book by a man named Robert Justice. They can't take your name. He's based in Denver. And it's about a wrongfully convicted man on death row. His daughter is trying to free him with the help of a jazz club owner. It's largely set in five points in Denver. And it has one of my favorite aspects of a book. His name is Justice. And the book is about a guy seeking justice. So I just love when the author's name and the book come together like that. Well, read along with us and we will, of course, be bringing you that interview on the fourth Thursday in February. But don't ever miss an episode, so subscribe to the podcast. So for the Radio Book Club, I'm Maeve Conran of KGNU. As always, my co-host, Arsene Kashkashian of the Boulder Bookstore. Thanks, Arsene. Thank you, Maeve.